and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Before we start this week's podcast, I just wanted to let you know that right now is the best time to join my Total Organist program because for 30 days you can try it out for free. It has hundreds of programs and trainings and thousands of instructional PDFs, exercises and videos in any area of organ playing. And this program is going to help you to achieve your organ-related goals faster than you would be on your own. So check it out on organduo.lt forward slash total dash organist. Welcome to Secrets of Organ Playing, podcast number 98. Today is Sunday, June 11, 2017. And today's guest is an American organist, Edward Landon. He began his intensive musical training at the St. Thomas Choir School under the direction of Jir Hancock. Upon his graduation from St. Thomas, he entered Interlochen Arts Academy, where he began his organ studies as the student of Thomas Berra. After high school, he attended the Eastman School of Music for two years. He then transferred to Westminster Choir College, where he completed his Bachelor of Music in organ performance as a student of Ken Cowan. While at Westminster, he also studied harpsichord with Kathleen Scheide, and further studies and coachings have been with Roberta Gary, David Hicks, Suzanne Landau, Marie-Louise Langley, Kimberly Marshall, Paula Pugh Romano, Kathleen Scheide, and Carol Terry. Edward has been recently appointed uh, sub-dean of the Philadelphia chapter of the American Guild of Organists, and currently he is an assistant director of music at Bryn Mawr Presbyterian Church, and his duties include directing numerous children's and handbill choirs, serving as principal accompanist for the 65-member sanctuary choir. Edward has previously held positions in New York City um, at Christ Church Methodist, Morristown, New Jersey at uh, St. Peter's Episcopal Church, and in the Mount Airy neighborhood of Philadelphia, Grace Epiphany Episcopal Church. In addition to recitals at the Cathedral Church of St. John the Divine and St. Thomas Church in New York City, in Old West Church, Boston, he has also performed in Germany and Wales, as well as on the historic 18th century Andreas Zilbermann organ in Transbourg, France. Edward's achievements as a church musician and performer were most recently recognized when he was named as a member of the class of 2017 by the Diapason Magazine's program 20 Under 30 which lifts up young professionals in the world of organ, harpsichord, carillon, and church music. Uh, a major interest in contemporary organ music, particularly by American composers, led Edward to commission E, Fantasia, and Parodies by Kathleen Scheide, Preludium and Psalm number 
139 by Pamela Decker, Prelude on the Caroline Dalet by Craig Phillips, and Exordium by Carson Kuhlman. Edward is also a composer himself, and his collection of organ music called Flourishes and Reflections was recently published by Lawrence. In this conversation, we talked about Edward's organist career, and most especially about his compositions and how he uh, gracefully dedicates his pieces to other composers and uh, what this art of organ music dedication uh, has done for him so far. Let's go to the show. So, Edward, I'm so delighted uh, that we're connecting on Zoom uh, platform. Technology works fine so far. Yes. Uh, and uh, we're on uh, two sides of the, of the Atlantic o- Ocean, right? And right. we're about uh, seven hours apart, right? Yes. You are, uh, you are in, the, in the morning and I am sort of in the evening. <laughs> amazing technology. It is. And we're hoping to be able to share uh, the love of pipe organ, pipe organ playing and things like that. Thank you so much. You're very generous and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Edward, uh, do you remember those early days when somebody introduced the pipe organ to you uh, in your childhood, perhaps? Can you share this uh, experience? Uh, how did you first fell in love with the organ? Um, my parents are both very musical, particularly my mom. So music was always a part of my life growing up. And as a child at church, um, my brothers and, you know, the three of us, we were always fascinated by the organ and we'd go listen to the organist play the postlude and watch him use his feet and the different keyboards and push the buttons. And it it looked like a lot of fun, Um, but I was still so young. And um, I really first knew that I wanted to play the organ when I was a little bit older. I attended the St. Thomas Choir School in New York City, and Jerry Hancock was the director of music. And um, his playing was such an inspiration to me as a young boy. And he is really the person that um, I think truly, you know, made that passion something I was just wild about and really wanted to finally play the organ. So I was about, you know, uh, 10 or 12 when I really realized that. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Uh, you heard uh, Mr. Hancock uh, play firsthand, right? You Did you hear a few of his uh, improvisations too? Yes, all the time. Yeah, I was at the choir school for four years from fifth to eighth grade. So about age 10 to 13. And, um, you know, we had, you know, even, even song services, multiple evenings a week and Sunday morning, um, Eucharist and concerts and, um, all sorts of exciting projects. So I was blessed to really hear his repertoire, improvisations, him playing, you know, service playing, as well as his wife, Judy, and um, the assistant organist um, during my time there was Tom Barra, who ended up being my first organ teacher. So it was really my, yeah, like I said, my introduction and true sort of desire to become an organist really came out of the, attending the choir school in New York City. 
Amazing. You know, our stories are a little bit different. My first experience with the pipe organ began when uh, my mom pumped this little antique 19th century uh, wooden church organ um, in, in, in the middle of nowhere, basically, in our parish where we have had a summer cottage, you know, many, many years ago when I was maybe in the sixth or fifth grade. Nice. And your organ was one of the most uh, impressive instruments in America, right? <laughs> yeah, certainly. Um, you know, now they have a new organ project at St. Thomas, which is so exciting, a new instrument being built by Dobson, just maintaining a couple of the really wonderful ranks from the previous instrument. But yeah, it was a thrilling, I, I love the sound of a full French tutti um, because that's really the sound St. Thomas was. So that's, um, you know, a great, uh, you know, oral memory for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And plus you, you met this master, right? Mr. Master Hancock, who, who, who is probably one of the legendary figures when it comes to improvisation in the United States, right? Absolutely, yeah. Everyone uh, knows his treatise and, uh, and his advice is, is basically a living monument. Yeah, yeah, he was, yeah, he was really one of the first Americans to, you know, he studied in France and he had some wonderful American teachers and he had this great... I think his improvisations, sometimes when I play works by Sowerby or Jongen, I hear Jerry's sounds, you know. So he had this this wonderful romantic sound to his improvisations and organ compositions. And uh, it just, you know, it's a wonderful, wonderful tradition that he started in America to have improvisation be a more um, common art, I think. Yeah, and uh, it really solidified uh, uh, extemporaneous music making in this country because prior to that, uh, of course, virtuoso performers were in high demand uh, touring all over the country, right? But nobody really, I I wouldn't say nobody, but it wasn't formalized, right? It was thought that only geniuses could improvise. Right. No. Uh, 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 Hancock said, "No, you can you can build a skill like anything else, right?" Right. I, yeah, I think that's the one of the best parts of a true um, supportive improvisation teacher that they'll help you realize that anyone can do it. You just have to, you know, some people have a fear or they're not as comfortable, and getting past that is the, you know, first major hurdle, and um, you know, then it can be a more comfortable, enjoyable thing. So- so, Edward, how are you interested in improvisation today? Are you are you practicing it today, for example? Is it a part of your uh, normal musical activities? It is. Um, you know, I think there's always it's always something you can keep on working with and trying to find new, you know techniques or ideas that you can use in improvisations. I certainly do it week in and week out. The church that I work for has an eight o'clock service in the chapel and I play it most of the time. And sometimes I play repertoire, but usually I use it. It's a nice opportunity um, to improvise a prelude, improvise during communion, and then also um, a sort of short postlude at the end of the service. So most, most weeks I do improvise that entire service and, you know, sometimes on a, a theme I come up with, other times just on um, one of the hymn tunes being used that morning. So 
that that's definitely a you know a, that's sort of my main improvisation output <laughs> week in and week out liturgical improvisation yes yeah. right mm-hmm. can you mention edward the name of the church so that people could uh, look it up right I, i'm the assistant director of music at Bryn Mawr presbyterian church which is just outside of philadelphia mm-hmm. Right. So let's go back in time again, because we were, <laughs> we started from early childhood, right? right. When you were 10, 10 years old, right? Yes. You met the master and then suddenly jumped <laughs> to the present day. Right, right. Okay. But it's good to know uh, the, the connection, right? You met the master and uh, he left so, such a d- deep impression on, on you, right? And improvisation stayed with you. Uh, for a long time, but up until now, probably. Imagine if you didn't, if you if you hadn't met Jir uh, Hancock, what what would have happened, for example, if you met another person right. on another situation? Yeah, it's interesting to think about that. You know, he um, certainly uh, knowing him from attending the choir school, you know, I met him in the context of his church work, not, um, you know, playing a recital. So um, I think I knew, you know, being an organist, there are some different, you know, ways of being an organist, a concert organist, a church musician, uh, a professor, um, a combination, you know, everyone has their sort of, you know, various interests and ways they want to have the organ in their life. Um, Jerry was known as a church musician, a teacher, and a concert organist. So he had all three. Um, so, you know, who knows, who knows, um, if my first major inspiration, uh, would have been a different organist, who knows how my musical life might be different. It's hard to say. So what happened next, uh, Edward, how did you understood that, understand that, that, um, organ is going to be your profession? For, for life? I think I'm lucky that um, my, my parents supported my decision that I really strongly wanted to be a musician. So once I graduated from the choir school as a young boy, um, I had just sort of tinkered around on the organ um, myself. I didn't, even though Jerry was my sort of main inspiration as a young boy, um, I was at the choir school as a singer and there wasn't much time to have organ lessons with him. So, um, you know, there was an organ housed in the choir school and Allen electronic organ that he and his wife would lend me the keys to on Sunday evening. And I could practice for a few hours and I would do that every week. Um, but I did not start my formal training until I was 13. I went to Interlochen arts Academy, which is a wonderful arts high school in Northwestern Michigan And um, the assistant organist at St. Thomas, Tom Barra, um, when I graduated, he also left the choir school and he became the organ teacher at Interlochen. And um, he was also a graduate of Interlochen. So it was sort of a return back home for him. Um, So I I began my studies with Mr. Barra when I was 13. And uh, he really focused on Gleason pedal technique and, um, you know, really getting, 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 because I was, you know, had taken piano lessons for years. I was comfortable playing the keyboard, um, but had to, had to get my feet moving comfortably. And he, for sure, I know if he had not been my first organ teacher, I know I would not have, um, 
felt as comfortable and become an organist in the same way because uh, he was so focused and so determined to help me succeed. And uh, he just had a wonderful way of um, helping me. And, you know, I, I really owe him a great debt as my first organ instructor. You mentioned uh, pedal technique with uh, Gleason and his method book. Um, was it difficult for you to master pedal playing at the beginning? I think, you know, that's something many people ask, you know, pianists that are interested in organ or just musicians in general that think it's crazy that we use our feet. Um, you know, I've heard that the bassoon is like the hardest wind instrument with all the fingerings and everything. So there are things on the organ that might be difficult at first, but you conquer them and you move on and then they're just, you know, second nature. So initially pedal technique was difficult for me. Um, I think particularly if you're trying to obey Gleason technique, you know, keeping your heels together, keeping everything within the fifth, you know, if you're, if you're trying to follow those rules and guidelines, it's more difficult than just stomping around down there. So I, I am, um, you know, grateful the, <laughs> the blood, sweat and tears that went into really getting comfortable using my feet on the pedal board. Yeah. So it was worth it, right? Uh, it was. It was. It was difficult at first, and then, like I said, you know, it was worth it, and now it's a comfortable part of playing the organ, of course. Of course, uh, uh, for many organists who have not had uh, uh, this uh, this extensive pedal training, uh, either playing pedals, scales, or arpeggios, or just exercises or excerpts from pedal uh, for uh, from repertoire, right. Uh, Pedal, pedal parts, right? Solo p uh, parts like uh, uh, F major. Remember Bach's F major to uh, prelude in Toccata, right? From, sure, yeah, from right. 140. Uh, two, two separate pedal solos in F major one and, and in C another. major, right? Yeah. That's, that's a classical example yeah. of how one can, can, can conquer entire range of, of pedal board. Yes, based right. Wonderful. Yeah. But now it's not, not a, a very difficult issue for you, right? You have many more other things to think about when you're playing. Right, right exactly. Yeah, because when you're starting the organ, you know, most, um, most of the repertoire you're playing doesn't necessarily have demanding registration changes or, you know, you're not focusing on certain aspects that eventually become, uh, you know, a, a standard part of most organ pieces. So... Yeah, I think eventually when, once once you conquer the pedals, you know, yeah, just as you said, there's so many other things to focus on when you're playing. So um, it's good to good to know what your feet are up to and that they're comfortable down there. Given that your first experience was this magnificent organ uh, with hundreds of buttons, right, and pistons, right? Um, what kind of instrument fascinates you today? I've, I've been fortunate to play so many different instruments. I, uh, obviously, the, the organ at St. Thomas is wonderful, and I've, I've, I've played two recitals there on the old organ. Um, I guess my, my you know, electro-pneumatic instruments were my first sort of introduction to the organ, so I learned about tracker organs later and learned how to work with mechanical action. At my current church, we have a wonderful Rieger organ that was built about 12 years ago. And it's, you know, a wonderful instrument. It's three manuals and pedal, and it's styled after Caballé Cole. 
organs, totally speaks French so well. And of course you can play any repertoire on it, but it's, it's so wonderful to just sit down and play um, French classical music. It has the crumb horn, the beautiful flute in the pedal, you know, so, so many of the special features of that repertoire that are difficult to register on organs, um, you know, not voiced or sort of that didn't truly intend to focus on that repertoire. So at, here at the church, I can really, it's, you know, French music is at home and so comfortable on it, but playing anything, I play a lot of contemporary repertoire. I compose my own music. Um, and, you know, I haven't found a piece that did not sound good on the organ or wasn't, you know, fun to figure out the registrations and make it sound its best. You mentioned you have, you are composing, right? What, what uh, inspired you to begin creating uh, your own uh, musical compositions? In the I uh, always had an interest in it. When I was a young boy, I remember I wrote a few organ pieces and gave them to Jerry Hancock to sort of, you know, look at and see what thoughts he had. And he, he gave me some, some, you know, I have that stored away someplace. It's a great memento. Um, and then I sort of took a long pause from it. And just a few years ago, I um, commissioned a former teacher of mine, Kathleen Scheida, to write me some organ music, as well as Pamela Decker, Craig Phillips, Carson Kuman. And uh hope I didn't miss anyone. Um, it's been a busy few years of these commission projects. And I sort of felt inspired after each one to kind of write a piece for each person. You know, I didn't tell them about it, but um, I wrote a, a short prelude-like piece for Pamela that's been published under the name Canto. And um, uh, I wrote a piece called Flourish, which is kind of a festive fanfare-like piece for Craig and uh, some others. So it's been, um, I feel like that sort of, somehow I always wanted to try and do more composing, but I felt stuck. And then somehow I, I had these pieces I wanted to really write and it sort of opened up this new world. And um, Carson Kuman one day, I remember checking my email and I'd been alerted that he had purchased a few scores off my website And I thought, oh my goodness, this well-known composer, someone I admire is buying my own music. And he liked a few pieces and asked me to write a few for this magazine of organ music that he is in charge of publishing. And it kept, you know, sort of building up and then it, it sort of peaked. And I just had a book published a few months ago that's a collection of hymn-based pieces and then free free. Um, free music that I composed um, and it was just a really exciting project and uh, I've been kind of busy this year at church with some other things so I haven't done as much composing in the past few months but um, you know it's uh, it's more a part of my life now and I, I really really am happy about that. So Edward uh, you mentioned uh... Yeah, these past years uh, have been busy composing, right? And it's interesting. Have you found your own original, um, uh, not style, but uh, manner of speaking musically, right? Maybe I think, style yeah. Range, uh, or, or are you in a in a in a phase of your life that that you 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 try to get as much inspiration from others, right? You know? I've, what is, what, 
happening with, with your projects internally? Can you share with us? A right. Bit? I think that, um, I think in a way I have some, you know, musical language. I, I have some chords I like and some cadent, cadential material. There, there are certain things I think that all composers have that present themselves, you know, in their music time and time again. You know, you can always, you know, maybe, maybe in 20 years I'll look back and think, you know, oh, that piece was written in 2017, you know, because maybe things will develop in a few years. I'll, I'll know, I'll know, you know, I had that sound or I was sort of focused on a certain kind of, um, you know, harmonic progression or who knows what. But um, yeah, I think, you know, I think composers do have their sound and I think that's, you know, part of it. But of course, some composers really develop and explore modes or, um, you know, on the organ, you have the benefit of wild registrations. You can do all sorts of things, you know. Um, I just wrote Kimberly Marshall, a piece based on a poem that she'll be premiering in the fall at Arizona, in Arizona. And um, I had never written a piece based on words before, or I guess I actually wrote a brief psalm prelude. So I wrote one, one short piece based on a psalm verse, but this was, you know, a non-religious text. So it was a new experience for me. And um, I, I hope, you know, she was very gracious and kind about it. So I'll look forward to hearing about it as she learns it and performs it in the fall. But that was a, a nice new experience. And I'm looking you know, looking now for some more texts to inspire me. Cause I, I think that was a, it was a fun and interesting and unusual, you know, way of writing a, a piece of music for me. Definitely. When you look at, at uh, sacred music repertoire uh, across the, the, uh, time periods, it has certain uh, styles, certain elements, right. Which are perhaps, uh, more common to this language, right? Uh, and it lacks some of the uh, concert uh, pieces uh, that they have uh, in common. For example, dance rhythms are not so right. often found in uh, liturgical settings, right? Exactly. So if you are in, um, inspired by words and not restricted by liturgical settings, then you can be um, probably more experimental, even, yes. right? Right. I, yeah, and I do find that this piece had a few, um, had some registration ideas I'd never tried before. And um, yeah, just a few things in it. You're right that, you know, the words inspired some different musical ideas. And that was a, a really interesting process. And if Kimberly will play this piece, for example, as part of her recital, then you can be quite relaxed about how her audience will will. I don't know, approve or not approve your piece because she is very good at uh, uh, picking other pieces besides, uh, for example, your given piece. Right. And I, I can be 100% sure that sh she will make your work look good. Right, you know? absolutely. Yeah, I know the program also features another piece written for her and there's a theme to the program. So it'll, you know, I'll, I'll look forward to a report. It'll be, it'll be very, um, it's a nice, you know, nice thing that she did asking me to write it and I, I will look forward to hearing about it. You know, what you're doing is sort of, sort of common sense, but uh, seldom, uh, I think, used in today's world, world, in organ world. You are dedicating 
right? Your composition to some uh, some uh, known or relatively unknown, not necessarily a famous organ, but right. dedicating to someone with the hope that he or she will perform, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So this is absolutely, I think, a must in today's world. Did you uh, have you written some pieces which are without education, just I, a normal? I don't think so. I think everything I've written so far, I've. It's not necessarily that I'm writing it with that person in mind, but in the end, I do want to dedicate every something, or sorry, I, I do want to dedicate every piece to someone because I think it's a nice, you know, tribute. So. I don't think I have any uh, dedicatee-less pieces. Yeah. <laughs> if you if you look at the compositions from from beginning of of twentieth century France, for example. Yes. Right. Majority of them were dedications, right? To, to yeah, Franck and Dupre. Every you know every piece is dedicated to someone. Even multi-movement, you know, pieces. They're all all dedicated to someone or in memory of someone. And I I think that's a um, I mean, a lot of, you know, new music is dedicated, dedicated to someone, but certainly pieces aren't. And I think it, it is a nice touch. And particularly if it's dedicated to another organist, as you just said, you know, um, I suppose the intent is for them to perform it, but also, uh, you know, <laughs> there's so much music out there. It's hard to learn all of it. So. Of course. And, um, uh... But you have to compose good music, quality music. Right, right. You, right. Uh, you know, at some level of, of your craft, uh, because if you're, if you're just starting, right, if you're just uh, uh, trying out your skills, right, and you write, uh, let's say, Prelude and Fugue or Sonata to Olviela Tree. Right. Right and send to I don't know through through his agent or through his, the Notre Dame of Paris, right, you know, right. hoping, hoping that uh, he will, <laughs> uh, you know, even pay attention. Right, right. It's not going to happen because um, it has to be good quality composition. Plus, can you share with us? Did you have pre- previous experience contact, uh, personal contact with this organist before composing? Um. I don't think I, well, Kathleen Scheide, who I wrote a piece for, and she's written me three or four organ pieces now. Um, she was my harpsichord teacher in college, and I've had a few organ lessons with her as well. And she lives in the area of Pennsylvania that I live now. So I see her regularly. We're both active on the organ guild, and I love her music. So um, I had known her, obviously. Pamela Decker, Craig Phillips, and Carson Kuman. I had not met um, any of them before commissioning the pieces that they wrote for me or um, writing the pieces I, you know, dedicated to them either. Um, I've met all three of them since then. Um, Pamela's written me two pieces now. Uh, I just premiered a psalm, a a psalm based work she wrote for me um, back at the beginning of April and uh, it'll be published pretty soon. So that's exciting. But uh, yeah, now I know all three of them and, you know, I've, I self-funded all of my commissions, which took a lot of time and energy saving up the funds to make them happen. So I'm taking a little little pause from it at the moment just to uh, take a breather. But um, by no means do I feel done. I mean, I would love, I would love to have – it's just so much fun to be able to say someone wrote a piece for you. You were a part of the planning process. Um, 
you get to give the premiere. Um, the first piece Pamela wrote for me, I, I premiered in Germany. You know, it's, it's fun to do things like that. And I would love to continue it in a, you know, another year or two. Definitely, you know, Edward, uh, I think you're making a, a terrific uh, investment. Uh, I think uh, even, uh, you know, saving up funds and, uh, you know, making uh, making your funds available to the creator, it's okay because it's an amazing work they're doing. Right. But on your part, of course, it's a terrific investment to your future because because these pieces will become part of your repertoire and part of your legacy too. You right. you building so much value around it. Just think about it, Pamela Decker. Let's say this this amazing performer and composer, right? You commissioned a piece uh, uh, from her, right? Uh, you you will be performing, right? So not only you will be. Um, uh, making uh, uh, great great things uh, for her, but also uh, she will promote you too because uh, to her audience because you are doing value, uh, giving value to that to her. Right. Um, and then you can ask, uh, you know, likewise, uh, Pamela, can can you play my piece? I I'm dedicating, you know, my work to you. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. Who who will not be able? Who would not uh, want to reciprocate when you commission something, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's common sense, right? It's a good thing. Yeah. Amazing, amazing uh, trend. I would say more people should, more organ composers should do that, and organists, right? We don't necessarily have to be great composers. We just need to compose, and by composing, creating practicing our craft we get better right right and uh, edward you probably would agree that your first composition is a little bit weaker than the last let's right. say right you, yeah, you always you, you develop and you, yeah exactly so it's 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 okay to start small and uh, humble with humble beginnings and uh, even copy somebody right somebody else's style that you admire right. and then little by little when you uh, develop some bravery and uh, some experience and uh, expand your musical vocabulary you will find your own voice right very true very true. So, uh, uh, tell me one more thing about composing, Edward. Um, you mentioned that during during these last few months, you didn't compose daily, right? You haven't had time. Yeah, um, right. Uh, that's okay. Uh, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm asking, do you always remember your responsibility to, to compose, even if you don't have the time. But is this idea still in your back, uh, back mind, mind uh, you know, back of the mind every day that you, you know, sort of this voice keep telling, keep, keeps telling you. you right. Should I think so. Yeah. You know, because I find when I'm improvising, I'll think, Oh, that was, that was kind of fun. I'll need to try and make a piece. You know, that could be a fun, a, a new piece. You know, yeah, it, it, there's always ideas running through my mind that that I that I, you know, hope I'll at some point circle back and and get to and be able to complete that idea and get it on on paper. 
you know what, what what I did some some sometimes with my improvisations I record them right uh, when I I don't know improvise publicly or even when I'm practice sure and they they are worth writing down as you say right majority of things I play are not worth <laughs> <laughs> but once in a while for example if I play non-stop improvisation uh, for an hour, uh, right, uh, like practicing without stopping improvisation, and I am recording it, I think I can find two or three minutes of, you know... Really good material, material, right? Worthy of writing down. Yeah. Have you had this experience yourself? Yeah I, yeah, I haven't recorded too many improvisations, but certainly when I'm... Like I said, when I'm, when I'm doing it, sometimes I think, oh, this is, you know, this is working really well right now, or I'm, you know, anyway. And then, <laughs> I, I, yeah, so I should probably start recording some of them so I can, can, can listen to it again and, and see what, what I liked so much about it and why it worked well and, you know, how it might be improved upon and make a nice composition. The reason I brought up recording your own performances, not only improvisations, but also other performances, but in particular improvisations, is because you can upload uh, it to to YouTube, for example, right? Channel, and uh, you don't have to make it available for public uh, uh, viewing. That's that's not the point. If you don't like, but you can slow down the speed and uh, right uh, uh, make it a, like a slow fifty uh, percent speed dictation and, and transcribe it. Right? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I've done a number of compositions this way, which first originated as, as real improvisations and then uploaded to YouTube. And uh, even, uh, I even uh, selected an episode from a bigger improvisation as a standalone piece, then made another video on YouTube directly on YouTube with YouTube video editor. It has this feature. And then, and then I slow down uh, the speed and then I, I put this uh, musical notation software that I'm using, let's say Sibelius, right? Right. And, uh, and I can listen to slow motion, slow tempo video and really notate my own improvisation as composition, if I like. So right. it's it saves time, but also saves musical ideas for the yes. people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great, that's a great part of technology, being able to do that. <laughs> And it preserves your um, pitch level. It, it doesn't... Uh, right, it doesn't what, make it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because uh, in earlier days, <laughs> of course... That, right, you would have been down a sixth or exactly. something. Right, yeah. Wonderful, Edward. Uh, I'm so, so proud that you, you are taking uh, those leaps with technology and composition and will be probably thinking... Uh, a lot of, of more exciting things to do in the future. By the way, what are you working on right now? What is your current current project this week? For uh, rep- organ repertoire? Let's say, yes, organ repertoire. Um, since <laughs> my church, we just had a, a massive choir concert last night yesterday afternoon actually and um there was a lot of practicing going into this wonderful piece by david conti invocation and dance which is for piano four hands and some percussion so 
the last few weeks of my life have really been focused on piano to really master that, that piece. Um, so now that that's through and it's kind of summer and summertime, uh, and I get to, that's when I learn new music or work on old music. I haven't played in a while, you know, to get, get things ready for the fall or upcoming recitals. So I'm sort of, I guess, in the process of thinking what some of that might be. I, as I said, premiered the most recent commission Pamela wrote for me in April, this Psalm 139 is its title. And it had some very demanding, difficult moments. So, you know, in the earlier spring and late winter, that was certainly taking a lot of my time to focus on that and learn it well. And I will continue practicing it to continue, um, you know, cleaning it up and getting some spots in better shape. I ideally would love to make a recording in the near future of all of my commissions, um, the pieces people have written for me, um, which means, you know, they will be sort of the main pieces I'm working on to keep them all in that high, high level of performance quality to record. Um, so that's kind of the project I have in mind, you know, coming up. Yeah. So you are basically in between of projects, right? Now, a little right? bit, a little bit. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a very interesting time, right? A little bit relaxing. Do you enjoy this relaxation after yesterday's uh, concert? It is nice, yeah, because, you know, there's so much, you know, there's certain levels of stress and different kinds of work that goes into preparing for major events, you know, whether it's a solo recital or something at my church. So when they're over, you know, you feel you feel good about them, hopefully. And also it's, it's nice to have a bit of a breather and, as you said, you know, in between projects, get to figure out, you know, what, to do what I want, what I want to learn next or work on. Yeah. Um, I had this also feeling sometimes, uh, uh, I think a few years ago, you know, I would play a recital and then think about what I'm going to do next. Right. But then, you know, opportunities to play are not always there uh, right away. For example, I would be, glad to perform once a month or once a week or once, I don't know, two months, whatever the, the schedule might be for me, exciting or not too overwhelming, but sort of a balanced schedule for concerts. Right. But for example, I might not get invitations that, that are in balance of my schedule. So then I thought, how can I, how can I, really make uh, make some future planning you know and i then scheduled to play one recital every month in my church uh, at saint john's church in vilnius university here in, in vilnius lithuania uh, and once a month so basically 12 times per year right. i'm playing i'm playing a recital so when imagine if i played yesterday something I knew that uh, a month from, from yesterday, I will be playing something else. Something else, right. And, and then, of course, I need to plan ahead because I would advertise my next program in, in today's program. Right. right? For our, my current listeners to be future listeners too. So I found that this helps me keep in, 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 
professional shape a little bit better when I plan ahead. Right. Have you tried it yourself? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's um, I mean, I suppose I do have a few smaller concerts coming up soon, but next April I'll, I'll do a full-length concert at my church, and I, I want to include some music with other instruments, which is something I love to do. And Craig Phillips has a wonderful piece, a multi-movement piece based on pieces of art, and it also has, um, it's with violin and flute. So I would like to include that in the program. So I haven't started learning it yet, but I have the score and I've notified my flute and uh, violin players. So that'll be a, you know, in the coming months as I begin to look at that piece, that's, you know, and you know, a new piece that I'll be adding to my, my, my repertoire and we'll be working on. Mm-hmm. That's great. Uh, I, I also find sometimes people come up to me after recital and, uh, you know, say their comments and feedback, and they ask me, what are you going to play next and, or right. when? Right, right. And that's when I was confused, you know, and uh, start to stumble. Oh, I don't know. Let's, let me think, you know, maybe maybe next year or that's, that's kind of tricky phase, right, to be right. between projects. So now I can say maybe five, ten, or twenty projects lined up for me. It doesn't mean I'll be playing, you know, in a rigid order because, of course, I keep the flexibility for myself to change right. things. Up. Right. But um, but then this plan, uh, artistic plan, maybe gives me more more uh, um, you know. Uh, strict view of my career and what what would I you know what I want to accomplish within six months uh, you know two years five years or so sure. so sure. I think every every organist who is listening to this conversation can also think about a long term planning a little bit not necessarily right. ten right. years from now we don't know if we will be alive hopefully we'll be. Right, uh, and in case we right. we have to view the fit a little bit. Better. Yeah, it's still always good to plan ahead and think about what 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 pieces you want to learn, what projects you want to you know participate in. Yeah, it's always a good thing to have that long term <laughs> planning and thought process. Wonderful, Edward. Uh, we we've spoken so many great things today. I hope people, you know, feel a little bit. Uh, excited about how can they incorporate some of your wisdom into their professional careers um, to, first of all, of course, uh, composing music themselves, improvising, uh, dedicating their own compositions, to mm-hmm. master, uh, even commissioning pieces. Sure, yeah. Of anything, I, of anything I do and we've discussed, I hope people really are fascinated by that. I just think it's so important. You know, there are so many wonderful composers writing organ music. Most of them are organists themselves. So they're, they're in our art. We know them. Google them. Go to their website. Email them. I mean, that's what I did. You know, I, I didn't know Pamela. I just, I said, I love her music. And I wonder if she'll write me a piece and if I can afford it, I'm going to pay her to do it. And that's what happened, you know, and it, it gave me the courage to then contact Craig and Kathleen, as I said, I had known. So that was a more comfortable relationship. But it's just, it's a, you know, we need to keep organ music alive. I play lots of wonderful, you know, 
standard repertoire, Bach, Mendelssohn, Dierre, and Franck. I, I play, you know, all that music I learned in school and I still perform it, but I just love new music and I love new music written for me. And I, I am so excited to hopefully see these pieces included in other people's concert programs. That would be, that would make me the happiest because then I know it was really worth it. And that, you know, my, uh, my idea really followed through and that uh, they become a part of the repertoire. And if, if, for example, you didn't have the courage to approach someone and to commission a piece right from them, um, this piece wouldn't have come into their existence, right? Right. Imagine uh, uh, 50 or 100 years from now, maybe this piece will be a landmark piece. Could be, right? Earth. Yeah, that's the hope. And yeah. you, you've been part of this. And right. you initiated it, actually. Right. So it's, it's you, Edward Landon, will become immortal I like the sound of that. (laughs) So I'm not saying uh, to, you know, to make fun of of, of your effort, but I'm actually, actually trying to inspire people uh, to think uh, really long term. It's true. Yeah, absolutely. Our legacy be right. One of the, one of the things we can do, of course, we can create music here, uh, by ourselves, like you are doing, and uh, we could uh, we could uh, dedicate to other people, right? We could sell our music on our website, right? right. That's, that's the easiest thing. If we dedicate another person, uh, performs it, we have a video, audio, maybe we can perform ourselves this, the same thing, uh, uh, put a video too, and it spreads if if the composition is good it spreads it's an amazing networking tool by the way to keep dedicating and you get dedications probably because of that from right. other people right right yeah so you get those professional friendships that last a lifetime exactly mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. it's much better i would say than than writing a composition and sending to a hundred publishing houses, you know, just hoping to get accepted and or picked for publication. Uh, because, you know, as you probably, you know, have this experience, major publishing houses really take on a risk of relatively unknown organists who just right. starting composition, right? They're thinking also about their business. And they have to be sure that this composition will sell. Yeah, they don't want to take too big of a risk with someone they don't know about, exactly. Like book book publishing, the same thing. Yeah. Um, right? So if you are if you're just starting out as a composer, right, and you are sending, you know, your choral preludes or fugues or sonatas to, you know, good and, and solid organ publishing houses, Chances are they they they're just ignoring you, right? Right. And, and it's very difficult to survive the rejection. You can survive one rejection, maybe five, ten, but constantly getting rejected is not right. a good thing. Takes the joy out of it. Yeah. <laughs> you start thinking, oh, I'm not good. My music is not not of the good quality, right? Maybe I should even stop composing. That wouldn't be good, right? If, I'm sure if, yeah, if people get too upset about rejections, you know, 
I'm hopefully, you know, yeah, you have to keep doing it because eventually if you really, I, th- I think if you have something good to say, um, in, in terms of composing, you know, someone will eventually take an interest in it and, um, you know, that's all that needs to happen. And then it sort of goes from there. But first you have to build an, a platform, right? right. Your platform, because nobody will pay attention True. unless you, you prove that you're worthy, right? And to, with today's tool and technology, with, with blogs and YouTube and recordings, uh, it's easier than ever, right? To be connected. To it is. Work, either for free or, um, you know, for money. Uh, right. Make it available across the continent. Uh, it's 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 a very small world right now, right? Yes. And it's better to take action than to wait to get picked. I think. I think also as a composer, I don't know how you know everyone that composes feels about this, but you know some people. I say I played a recital a few months ago, and I you know, in my biography, it now says about my book that was published and everything. So um, if I don't perform pieces that I've written, sometimes people say, oh, we would have loved to have heard a piece you've written. You know, why didn't you include something today? And then I kind of feel fun. You know, I almost feel silly playing my own music, but why else did I write it? I might as well perform it. So um, I'm trying to start performing more of it. Um, This Easter at my church, we have brass, plays during the service and we do some extended prelude music and I arranged um, Flourish, the piece that I wrote for Craig Phillips for brass, quartet and timpani. Um, and uh, I posted on Facebook about to organists, is anyone looking for a new brass arrangement? I have this piece, maybe, you know, I'm happy to send it and see what you think. And um, a few friends expressed interest and it was performed in Atlanta and another church in Philadelphia. So, you know, you just, sometimes you just have to, you know, go out there on that limb and it might seem, you know, funny or kind of silly to ask people to perform your music, but if they want to, and if they have an interest, they will. And if I hadn't done that, then, you know, only my church would have performed that piece on Easter, but instead a few others did and more people heard my music and hopefully enjoyed it. And, you know, that's kind of how that, <laughs> that road begins. And you only need to build a 1,000 true fan base. Uh, that's, that's not a million, but 1,000 people who are interested in your work deeply in all shape and form, every, you know, every imaginable form will be enough. Right. Let me do the math for you. A, a true fan is is a person who spends one hundred dollars with you per year. Right. Is it is it a lot? Not not really. It's it's like like uh, ten dollars per month. Right. right? Uh, per month, like like one dinner per month, right? Yeah. Or lunch. Yeah. Uh, lunch. And uh, when I say true fan, that basically this person will buy anything you provide basically become evangelist for your cause. Right, right. Your composition. You know, I have a few fans like that, and it's been extremely rewarding because what I'm doing is actually creating for them, right? I'm not chasing uh, anonymous strangers no no longer, but I'm I'm creating for them. Not, Not necessarily in terms of musical composition, it could be music, of course, but it could be text, it could be blog posts, it could be podcasts, it could be anything I create. 
Sure. Um, so uh, Kevin Kelly, a famous uh, uh, writer, wrote uh, that article, which is very, very influential today. Uh, One thousand true fans, and uh, any creative person can really grasp the influence of this uh, uh, concept because it's 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 not a million true fans because million is a lot. It's, it's right. probably impossible, but. 1,000 is doable, right? Sure, yeah. If you have 1,000 people spending with you $100, you know, here and there, it doesn't matter, maybe uh, maybe 500 people spending uh, $200 per year. It's, it's, it's You can divide the, the math any way you want. So then you have six-figure salary. <laughs> right. 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 right, right. That's enough to live... Uh, uh, a decent and, and uh, normal lifestyle right, in, right. in the world, right? So, so what we can do that technology and um, it enables us to create and connect with people and build our fan base all over the world. That's that's what I advise people to do, and uh, and you know this this uh, fire will spread too. I, I hope exactly right. Yeah. So wonderful, Edward. Uh, I, I hope people are now curious to, to get to look at your own compositions, right? That'd be great, yeah. The things that you're doing, your projects. So can you share with our listeners a link where they can find your work sure. online? Yeah, my, my website is just my name, edwardlandon.com. So that's mm-hmm. easy. <laughs> and I do not, I used to have my, my score, some of my scores available on my website, but now that um, quite a few are published, um, I've taken that off. So I have a list of everything I've written and a link to the new book published by Lorenz. You know, so I, I try and keep it up to date and active about what's happening. But uh, can't you can't buy anything on my my website anymore? You'll have to do it through the publisher now. So, and uh, can you mention what is this book about? Um, it's. Uh, Chorale Preludes that I had written sort of for the liturgical year. It's, it's a collection of musical compositions, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, yeah. Um, yeah. So Chorale Preludes and then some free, free music that I wrote, including some Takata, a Takata and some other pieces like that. So, yeah. So Edward, uh, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really inspiring to, to meet a person who is so connected and, uh, thinking well ahead in the future, you know, in terms of musical legacy, in terms of uh, networking, but, you know, ethical networking. We sometimes meet organizers who are really spammers, right? They send uh, recital proposals all the time to strangers. We just ignore things, right? Right. And ignore their compositions. I'm sorry to say that, but, but just how it works, right? You have to Probably you have to earn the privilege to ask, right? You have to right. give something first. You have to help somebody first to achieve their goals in order to uh, be able to ask first, <laughs> later, right? So, so you're yeah. doing this, Edward. I'm so, so happy that you are on the right path. Thank you. It's been my pleasure to talk with you, and I hope people enjoy our conversation. And Edward, before we end, can you go back in time when you first started playing the organ? Remember those early days, right? 
your maybe pedal exercises for right. this or another pieces that you uh, struggled perhaps to master at the time. What would be the number one thing you wish you knew back then that might have changed things and made them easier? When I was starting the organ? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, knowing that it was all worth it. So even though at the time, you know, struggling with, with pedal technique and as I said, my teacher who I owe, the reason I'm still an organist is because of Tom Barra and his, his wonderful beginnings as my teacher. But um, it was tough at first and he was a, a tough, tough teacher making sure I, I put in the time and effort and I didn't practice as much as I should, you know, so you have to do that to improve. So I, I just wish I knew, you know, that it, it got easy. It would have, you know, it seems silly to say, but uh, I probably could have gotten further more quickly had I just put in that effort a little bit more and um, known that it, it it would have gotten easier. But, you know, eventually I, I got past some of those hurdles and, you know, mm-hmm. the world's your oyster once you're comfortable at the organ. So your number one advice to people today would be probably to take this organ playing project seriously right from the beginning, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think the organ is one of those instruments that's so fascinating to sit down and you, you pull the different stops and all the combinations. It's so easy to get distracted by the sounds and the acoustic and, you know, the swell shoes and the crescendo pedal. Just pull on a four, an eight-foot flute, you know, and just practice the notes. That's what you have to do at first because, you know... <laughs> all of that exploration, even though it's fascinating and it's really what pulls most organists into being an organist, um, you have to focus on the, the technique, the pedal work, getting comfortable on multiple manuals. You know, that's that's what you have to work on at first. And then once you are comfortable, you know, hit all the pistons you want, you know, have fun with the registrations. But yeah, it's at first, all those things are really just a, <laughs> a bit of a distraction. Mm-hmm. What you need at first is eight-foot flute. Right? Yeah, just a quiet stop, and you just need to, you know, play the notes, right? <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much, Edward, one more time. And keep creating and keep sharing. Thank you. And thank you. Thanks for listening to this conversation. I'm so grateful for your attention and time. And it would mean a world for me if you would go to iTunes and leave a review there. One study view is great, and five studies even better. And of course, if you want uh, to achieve your organ-related goals faster, then you will be on your own. Uh, now it's the best time to join my total organist membership program, because right now you can try it out for free for one month. Go to organduo.lt forward slash Total-organist. If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog Secrets of Organ Playing at organduo.lt where you will find lots of insights, practical advice and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vida Spinkavitus. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you online really soon.